and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Happy Halloween! We thought we'd get in the spirit today by sharing spooky stories from our sewing rooms. Our staff and listeners are sharing some quilting fails, scary moments, or silly mistakes. I'll start. I made my first puff quilt earlier this year. I absolutely love it. Uh, It's on my couch right now, Uh, but the binding was a disaster. The technique I chose for the binding, which is the technique the designer recommended, was to turn the backing to the front of the quilt, turn it under, and machine stitch it down. And this technique seemed a lot easier to tackle on this very heavy and thick puff quilt than doing traditional binding. For the technique, when you're done quilting, you trim the batting even with the quilt top and trim the backing half an inch outside the quilt top. So you can turn it under a quarter of an inch and then another quarter of an inch to hide the raw edge for the binding on the front of the quilt. So I trimmed my backing first using a rotary cutter and ruler. Then I went in with the scissors to trim the batting even with the quilt top. Well, at one point, I didn't realize the backing and batting were stuck together while I was trimming, and I ended up cutting a hole in the backing. Very frustrating. I kept cutting, and about a foot later, I cut another hole in the backing. So at this point, I just needed to step away from the quilts because I can't believe I keep making this mistake, especially when I was just so, so close to being done with this quilt. Uh, I considered doing a traditional binding instead and just cut off the holy backing completely, uh, but I didn't buy enough of the fabric to do a binding. So I'm stuck finding a solution. So I end up using scraps of the backing I have left to patch the holes using fusible. And then the worst part of the whole thing was that I had used a striped fabric for the backing. So I had to fussy cut the patches and fuse them just so exactly uh, to make the binding look okay. So I have not washed this quilt yet. Uh, I have no idea if these patches are going to hold up over time. I really hope so. Uh, But I spent just so much time and fabric on this puff quilt. So it was so defeating to have things go wrong at the very end. Uh, But lesson learned on that binding technique. Uh, I do think I would try this technique again because it was so fast and easy. uh, But I need a new method for cutting the batting. Okay, now I'm passing things off to my coworkers for them to share their frightful stories. This is Doris, editor of American Patchwork and Quilting. I actually just experienced a quilty fail a few weeks ago. You would think when we spend our days writing, editing, and sharing instructions for quilt projects, we wouldn't make mistakes when following our own directions. Wrong. All of us on staff are making the Blast from the Past sampler quilt to celebrate our 30th anniversary in 2023. And we're working ahead of our readers testing out our instructions and measurements. 
I printed out the instructions and templates for several blocks and spent the night before a recent camping trip cutting out each block and organizing them in plastic bags. I had planned to take my Singer Featherweight along and get caught up on some sewing in the camper. So on the first rainy day of our trip, I got all set up and started sewing my first block. I had done some fussy cutting for my scrap bins to add a little punch to this block, and I was excited to see it come together. I first sewed my four nine patch units. No problem, looks good. Moving along, I stitched up four peaky and spike units using the pieces I had fussy cut from the pattern templates. I had to unsew a seam or two because, well, you know, but once complete, they looked so great. When I set them down next to the nine patches, I immediately noticed something was not right. Each peaky and spike unit was exactly a quarter inches too small. Ugh! Palm to the face moment. I had not double checked that my templates printed at 100%. I packed up my sewing stuff, put it away, and went to read a book. I completed zero quilt blocks while on my trip. I will be triple checking all printed templates from now on. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. And there are a couple of things in this world that absolutely terrify me and send me running in the opposite direction. Those things are bats, karaoke bars, and having to quilt my own quilt tops. Okay, I may be joking a little bit on that last one, but I have to admit that quilting my own quilts on my domestic machine, instead of sending them off to a long arm quilter, really intimidates me. It can be scary to stare at a blank quilt top and try to work up the courage to quilt it yourself, especially after you've spent a lot of time and money into piecing that quilt top and the idea of potentially ruining it can be paralyzing. I have definitely made many mistakes on projects over the years, and I have learned a couple of valuable lessons along the way. My first mistake is that I rush through the prepping of the quilt top because I just get so excited to see the finish line or because I'm up against a deadline. Prepping is so important and I've learned the importance of pressing both the quilt top and the backing fabric and even the batting if I'm being really patient. Pressing my seams flat and trimming long threads makes such a difference and is something you can't go back and correct later. The second mistake I've made in the past is not basting well enough. Basting is one of my least favorite quilting tasks, but it is so important to prevent shifting and puckers while quilting. A few few years ago, I learned the tip that you should use your open hand as a guide for pin placement, and it was a game changer for me. Since learning that tip, I use almost twice as many basting pins as I have in the past, and that's such and it makes such a difference. And finally, the worst quilting mistake I made was attempting matchstick quilting on a small throw by sewing the straight lines from opposite ends of the quilt. This was such a mistake that resulted in an extremely wavy quilt back and distorted quilt blocks on the front. And I was so scarred from that mistake that it was years before I attempted matchstick quilting again. Now I know that it is best to quilt in one direction and that quilting can't be rushed. Hi, I'm Beth and I'm sharing a spooky quilting fail that happened to me recently and I'm calling it the curse of the poor lighting. My sewing room is located in my basement and it doesn't get very much natural light. We have one egress window and one smaller high window 
And when we finished the basement, I added a ton of recessed lights. I painted it white so it does feel very bright. I was going to make a table runner and I pulled some pastels and a white background from my fabric stash. I was so excited to find everything I needed in my sewing room and got sewing right away. When I was finished with my table runner top, I brought it upstairs to take a photo on my table before quilting it and discovered that some of the pieces of fabric I thought were white were actually cream or off-white. If I had noticed the pieces were different colors at the start of the project, I could have strategically placed them so it looked intentional, but the pieces ended up in random spots so it definitely looks like an accident. I haven't finished the runner yet since I'm so disappointed that it happened, although not quite disappointed enough to remake the entire thing. I'm hoping quilting it with a brighter colored thread will distract enough from the multiple colored background. Lesson learned, when selecting fabrics, I now bring them upstairs to look the, at them in the natural light before making my final fabric decisions. And I also probably need a better system for labeling those solids so I know which fabric is which color. Hi, I'm Allison. Most of my quilting fails happen at night, so I try to avoid staying up late working on projects. My sewing room and bedroom are next to each other, both visible from the hallway. If I'm heading to bed and glance into my sewing room when a project is in progress, I get distracted and think, I'll just sew for 10 minutes and then go to bed. Sometimes it's better to tackle projects a little at a time, and I think I'm doing my future self a favor. However, having this thought at night usually gets me into trouble because I either stay way longer than 10 minutes or make mistakes because I'm tired. Instead of helping my future self, I end up making more work and struggle to fall asleep because I can't stop thinking of the mistake I made. I was recently cutting pieces for a project and only had a couple more blocks to go. As I was on my way to bed, I decided to just finish up cutting for those two blocks so I could get straight to sewing in the morning. In theory, it was a great idea because I wouldn't have to worry about cutting the next day. But in reality, I ended up cutting several pieces too small, which I discovered the next day as I was trying to sew pieces together. Luckily, I had enough fabric to recut the correct sizes and continue sewing. However, I've definitely had similar situations where I didn't have enough fabric to recut, so I either had to buy more or substitute with a different fabric. Another late night error that sticks out was when I was quilting a wall hanging for myself. Once again, I got distracted as I was going to bed and decided to finish up some straight line quilting that I had started earlier in the day. Since they were just straight lines, I figured there wasn't anything I could mess up. I'm happy to report that I actually didn't mess up the straight lines. However, I did manage to quilt my project with part of the backing folded under. After discovering my mistake many quilting lines later, I decided to just go to bed and rip things out the next day. But as I lay in bed, I couldn't stop thinking about those stitches. I immediately hopped out of bed and into my sewing room to rip everything out and start fresh the next day. I never actually plan on sewing at night. It just kind of happens as I make my way to bed. So perhaps I need to start closing the door to my sewing room so I'm not tempted to just sew for 10 minutes. Hey, it's Lindsay. I have some stories to share from our listeners now. 
So Carrie Ann Youngblood said, I made a very simple modern quilt that had a Southwest feel to it. Big points and stars. I finished the top and quilted it. I put the binding on and hung it in the stairwell wall to admire it before gifting it. I kept staring at it, feeling something was wrong. The next morning before boxing it up, I noticed that the bottom point on one of the stars was facing the wrong way. These were big stars. I was mortified. It was a beautiful quilt and I sent it off anyway, but how disappointed was I? Maria Murphy says, I found a quilt pattern in a magazine. It was earlier in my quilting life and I didn't think to try out one square before cutting out all the fabric. I joyfully cut out everything. It was only after trying to assemble a block that I realized there was an error in the pattern. I had to get creative to make it work. Now I try a square before cutting everything. Jean's story says, I had picked up a jelly roll of pink fabric. After I opened it up, I could see it was only a half count, only 20, not 40 strips. No more pink jelly rolls at any of the other stores in the area. So I picked up pink yardage and several lengths and prints to cut into strips and supplement my jelly roll. After I compared the various strips, it was obvious that I had two different families of pinks. Now, fast forward about 18 months, there's now two more of the 20-count pink jelly rolls on clearance at Joanne's. Tonia Henry says, One Saturday night, I was chopping up scrap fabrics for a quilt project I was taking to retreat. Well, I modified the pattern a little, and my math was off. The next morning, I discovered I had cut enough fabric to make three quilts. I took all three to the retreat and bought some new friends. One of the friends finished her quilt. The other friend added a little more fabric and split it with a friend. They each finished their quilts, and mine is still in a tote somewhere. Vicki Murphy says, A fellow quilter completed her quilt on the long arm. It wasn't until after she washed it that she learned she had forgotten to replace her water-soluble basting thread with normal thread. What a mess. Michelle Mingoya says, I made a quilt from scraps. Upon washing, the strip in the center, apparently ancient or maybe haunted, turned to dust. Replacing it was a nightmare. Barbara Freeman says, I finished binding a quilt with lots of white, lots of work, and lots of hand embroidery and spread it out on the floor to admire. I stepped on my own feet and spilled a full cup of coffee on it. I went into panic mode and went to work with a wet cloth and the black flowered backing started bleeding through onto the white. I eventually got most of everything out, but it wound up as a futon cover in my sewing room. Connie Bryan says, I cut out 275 triangles and they were the wrong size for my pattern. I was so frustrated, I threw them away, threw my pots and pans away, they were old, and went shopping. I came back in a much improved mood with new pots and pans and new fabric. Barbara Illiff says, At a quilting retreat, two members were sewing and cutting at the same table. While one was sewing, the other one was cutting. The one cutting accidentally cut right through the electrical cord for the other's machine. Sparks did fly. Wow. Uh, these were all legitimately scary. Uh, 
my stomach just drops when I hear these because I can totally imagine the panic felt in these situations. Uh, I also received a lot of stories that included injuries and blood, uh, which is actually really scary. And those kind of stories just gross me out a little. So I just chose not to share any today in case any of our listeners are squeamish too. So we're going to take a quick ad break. But when we come back, we're talking about shopping habits and a new sew along. Hey, folks, it's Hunter Lewis, editor-in-chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living and Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. Welcome back. Now it's time for a segment called Lindsay's Musings, where I pull my Instagram followers on a hot button quilting topic and share some thoughts. This month's musings are about shopping habits, uh, specifically if people buy more yardage versus pre-cuts. So I did a series of polls on my Instagram, and here are the results. So a total of 102 people took these polls. First, I asked what cut of yardage people prefer to buy. 36% said they prefer yardage. 8% said they prefer pre-cuts. And 56% said they do a mix of both. Then I asked the people who prefer yardage how they shop. And 27% said they only buy what they need for the pattern. 73% said they buy any fabric they love and will find a use for it. I asked the people who prefer pre-cuts about their shopping habits then. And 38% said they buy the bundle of the entire collection, whether that's a charm pack, a layer cake, a jelly roll, or another pre-cut bundle. And 62% said they will only buy fat quarters um, of just the prints they like. So I find this information fascinating. Um, And granted, I do think I shop much differently than most people. Um, I do prefer to make scrappy quilts or mix and match collections to get a variety of color and prints in my quilts. I rarely buy yardage. Um, Usually I make piece backings for my quilts. Uh, For my backgrounds, I don't mind a scrappier look. Um, Although on occasion I have bought yardage of, you know, like a solid white or cream because the quilt really does seem to need it. Uh, But I like the challenge of not having enough of a fabric for a pattern sometimes because it forces me to be creative and pull in other fabric and elements. And even if I bought yardage, I would only buy what I needed for a pattern and no more. As for pre-cuts, I own more fat quarters than any other cut of fabric in my stash. Uh, I love fat quarters. They are something I find no guilt in buying if I love the fabric because it's cost-effective. I can only buy the prints I like, and that allows me to mix and match to get a variety of prints in my quilts. 
I have on occasion made a pre-cut friendly pattern that called for charm squares or mini charm squares, but I'm fine cutting my own from my fat quarters to make the quilt and then having leftovers if needed for other projects. Uh, fat quarters have just always been what I bought as a little treat when visiting a quilt store. Uh, so I just like treating my fabric collection that way. Just a bunch of random fabrics I love from all different places. Um, I've never felt strongly about yardage, but here are some replies from my Instagram followers that make a good point. So Sherry says, I always buy more than what I need. That way I have extra fabric. And Amy says, I get two yard cuts, but I don't know if that's always enough. So if I really love it, I will get five to six yards. So these strategies seem great if you're making quilts that use a lot of repeated blocks or you like a nice and uniform style. Uh, and if you buy extra yardage or more cuts of yardage, you have enough for backings and backgrounds and borders and even bindings so you can make sure that you're not running out. Uh, if I had a larger sewing space, I think I might buy more yardage. So many people commented that they like to mix yardage and pre-cuts, and I totally get that. So here's what some people said. Jenny said, I recently purchased my first fat quarter bundle. I added yardage for even more variety. Meg said, when I buy for my stash without a plan, I get a layer cake, a one yard cut, and a five yard cut. Then I can pick the pattern later. Tracy says, I buy charm packs and layer cakes because it's a great price point. Then I mix in solids. So I do think this is a very smart way to shop. Uh, buying the pre-cuts because it's, you know, a great price point and you get a variety. And then you can mix in yardage for the background. So whether you're shopping for a specific pattern or not, you have what you need to make a quilt. And then some people use fabric buying as a more special activity, which is probably close to maybe where I fall on the shopping spectrum. Uh, Stacy says, I love buying pre-cuts as souvenirs while traveling. And Dana says, I only buy fabrics needed for projects. I don't buy just because I like it. So I love both these philosophies. Um, and you know, no matter what your shopping habits are, I hope that you're buying fabric that you truly love and that you intend to use and not just as an impulse. So if you have topics to explore for the next Lindsay's Musings, let me know. And make sure you're following me on Instagram at Lynn's Mayland so your opinion is heard. Now I wanted to share a little info on an upcoming sew-along we're hosting. It's the Winter Make a Display Wall Hanging Sew-Along. So this entire year, we've been doing sew-alongs for these cute medallion-style wall quilts designed by Allison Jensen of Woodbury Way. So in spring, we did a flower. In summer, there was a sailboat. In fall, there was a pumpkin. And now for winter, there's an evergreen tree. So the quilts all finish at the same size. They're 20 and a half inches square. So if you make all four quilts, you can easily swap them out for displays. What I love about this winter sew along is the quilts can be for winter or Christmas. So the winter version features greens, blues, and whites but you can easily swap in a red or gold for something for the holidays. So the sew along starts on November 11th and it's a quick one. It ends uh, early December and 
you know, this project is smaller. So it just requires a small time commitment and just would need a little bit of sewing time each week to finish the quilt on our schedule, which is perfect when the holidays are busy. The pattern is available in the winter 2023 issue of Quilts and More, which just hit newsstands, and it's also available as a PDF online. So I hope you join in. I think it's so important to carve out some sewing time during the holidays, and this quilt is cute and will last as decor all season long. So I'll post a link to the sew along info in the show notes if you're interested. We're going to take a quick ad break, but when we come back, we're answering a listener question and sharing some listener tips. Welcome back. Now it's time for Ask Us Anything, where we answer listener questions. And this question comes from Linda. She says, I am wondering if a crazy quilt is a fact or myth. I am reading Apart at the Seams by author Marie Bostwick. In this book, the story talks about quilting a crazy quilt. It sounds exciting, but I'm not sure if there is actually a pattern to follow. Please let me know if you can help and if a pattern actually exists. Great question, Linda. Crazy quilts are a real thing. So for those who have never heard of crazy quilts, they're composed of what look like a random assortment of fabrics in irregular shapes and many times they're decorated along the seams with embroidery stitches. They were traditionally made of silk, but could also be a mix of fabrics. They do look, in a word, uh, crazy. So let me share a little about the history of crazy quilts first, because I think it's fascinating. Crazy quilts are truly a fad and a reflection of the time period. So historians are not sure of Crazy Quilt's precise beginnings, but they do agree that their popularity soared in the last quarter of the 1800s, becoming icons of the Victorian era. As men headed out to politics and business, women's job was in the home, maintaining it as a place of peace and shelter. An elegant, tasteful dwelling, they believed, was both visually and spiritually good for those who lived there. A growing number of magazines and books influenced elaborate home decorating trends, engaging women in what became known as fancy work. Women garnished almost every home accessory with beads, feathers, flowers, and lace that reflected their sense of beauty and artistry, And this also included quilts. At the same time, the mass production of sewing machines and the manufacture of silk in America widened interest beyond just cotton and wool. Women were also influenced by England's Queen Victoria, who in mourning the death of her husband, Prince Albert, perpetuated fashion trends in rich, dark colors and elaborate ornamentation. Philadelphia's 1876 Centennial Exposition is also considered a dynamic influence in crazy quilt design. At the entrance of the most popular Japanese pavilion, the image of a priest on a paved road introduced the concept of a symmetry to people who attended. A cracked ice mosaic pattern on the path 
felt exotic to Americans. They became enchanted with anything Oriental and were replicating the look in their art, including quilts, uh, even dinnerware, furniture, and other decorations. As a random patchwork spread to both city and country folks, it became the first commercial needlework craze in America. By 1884, silk manufacturers sold kits of scrap silk. Cigar manufacturers wrapped silk ribbons around bundles of cigars. And cigarette paper manufacturers tucked silk premiums into their cigarette paper packages for men to give their wives. Women's literature supported the rage by publishing crazy patchwork patterns that could be ironed on, traced, or transferred to fabric. Some magazines offered pattern incentives in exchange for enlisting new subscribers. Fabric manufacturers also joined the rush by printing whole cloth cotton, imitating crazy patchwork. Crazy quilt shows naturally followed, often attracting hundreds of entries that were judged for the oddest designs and materials, variety of stitches, and the greatest number of pieces. In the flurry, another sentiment emerged that would underscore Crazy Quilt's imminent decline, a reflection of women's growing independence. Uh, some believed fancy work was unhealthy and unnecessary, suggesting time with books was more productive. Soon, lavish crazy quilts used for decoration gave way to 20th century utilitarian quilts. Women continued to incorporate random patchwork into more traditional projects, but without defining ornamentation. So crazy quilts are still around today, uh, but they're a little more modernized now. There is usually not a set pattern for a crazy quilt because the point of a crazy quilt is that each block is a little different and varied to give truly, you know, a unique look to the quilt. But here are some general guidelines to follow. So you may start with a piece of fabric in the center and continue adding and trimming strips, squares, rectangles, other shapes around the outside until your fabric piece is as big as you want your blocks. And then you can trim each block to a consistent size. Uh, this can sometimes also be called like an improv log cabin technique. Um, and actually, AccuQuilt has a crazy quilt die cut. Um, so if you don't necessarily like to wing it, you could buy that and have all your pieces the, in the same uh, in each block, but you could vary the fabrics. You can also find templates or foundation paper piecing patterns out there for crazy quilts. So I will link to some resources in the show notes for those. Thanks for your question, Linda. Uh, if you do end up making a crazy quilt, send me a picture. Now we're moving on to listener tips, a segment where I share the genius advice given to me by our listeners. So this first tip is from Jane Wallace. She says, I have a cookbook stand with multiple grooves to accommodate many sizes of cookbooks. My cookbooks are now digital, so I use the wooden base to hold my many plastic rulers upright on my cutting table where I can easily grab the size I need. Great tip, Jane. I love finding new uses for things in our home we don't necessarily need for their purpose anymore. And ruler holders can sometimes be expensive. So I think it's fun to find a cheaper alternative. I also think mail or file folders work great for rulers too. And uh, sometimes those are things we may not necessarily need anymore. The next tip comes from Sarah Lampert. 
She chimed in on our inner critic discussion from episode 571. On that episode, we talked about different ways to overcome those negative voices inside our heads. And Sarah offers this idea. I have found that the best strategy for me when my inner critic gets on me about my quilts is to just put the project away for a while until it feels fresh. I often start to question my choices once I am in the middle or even nearing the end of the project. When that happens, I just need to finish it and send it to the long armor. Once it comes back in a few months with beautiful quilting, I will be all about it. Love that, Sarah. That sounds like a great strategy. Sometimes projects just need to be put away so we can come back to them with a new perspective later on. Thanks for this suggestion. And now I have some tips from our magazine readers to share. This one is from Trudy Lindemann. She says, whenever I purchase a tool for my sewing room or change a rotary cutter blade, I write the date on the item with a permanent marker. This gives me an idea of how often some items need to be replaced and how long I have owned certain pieces of equipment. For my machines, I write in their manuals when they were serviced or repaired. Melody DeGraziano says, I like to transform little vases I find at thrift stores into pincushions I can give as gifts or set out on a table as decoration. To make a pincushion that I can glue into the vase opening, I wrap steel wool with batting and cover the batting with fabric. Marguerite Hansen says, I use panels to make seasonal wall hangings. To store a wall hanging when a season changes, I roll it right side out around an empty cardboard tube. That way, when I unroll it the next year, the bottom of the panel curves toward the wall and there are no fold lines. I always love hearing tips and sewing hacks, so please email me, any you have, at apqpodcast at meredith.com. And that's it for today's show. Before we leave, I wanted to ask for everyone's help. In mid-November, we're doing a podcast about gratitude in your sewing space. I'd love to share what our listeners are thankful for in their quilting lives, whether it's a person, a tool, a product, or a feeling quilting gives you. To share, please email me at apqpodcast at meredith.com. That's listed in our show notes. I can't wait to hear what everyone's grateful for this year. It'll be such an uplifting and positive episode. Everyone have a great week. Hi all, and thanks for listening. Keep in touch. American Patchwork and Quilting is on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at All People Quilt. Email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast. And if you love the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It helps other quilters find us. Have a creative week.